All right. Good morning, everyone. Finally here. We'll continue our study this morning from the Foundations of the Faith book. The um, authority, we looked at authority of God and the Godhead last week. We're going to look at authority in the Word this week, you know, just a little bit further. Okay, so looking at, back at what we had done before, we looked at the fact that Jesus had declared that all authority had been given to me in heaven and earth, we saw in Matthew 28 and 18. With those words, he established himself as the ultimate source of authority and charged his apostles to teach the nations, to observe all things that I've commanded you. And the prophecies were fulfilled and miracles were worked to prove his identity. We talked about the authority of God comes not from as we see in man, but the authority of God comes from the fact of who he is. And we talked about the great works that he was capable of doing, the power that he has, and that that authority that God has because of who he is, he passed on to the Son. Did that for reasons that we've discussed, the fact that God wanted everyone to respect the Son the way they respected the Father. So the authority, the power... Uh, that we see in God, we also see in the Son. And then we talked about the fact that his authority was extended through the preaching and writing of the apostles. This is the very thing Jesus was describing. We talked to Peter, we see in Matthew 16 and 19, and I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then again, we see in John 16 and 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth and will not speak on his own authority. But whatever you hear, he will speak and will declare unto you the things that are to come. So when we talk about the word, we want to get, I guess, a proper viewing of this. The Bible talks, we read in 1 John about the word, sorry, in John 1. And we read there, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we read a little further down in that chapter, and we see that the term Word refers to Jesus Christ. So why is Jesus Christ called Word? Okay, come on now. Right, everything from New Testament scriptures given from Christ. What else? He spoke everything into existence. Spoke everything into existence. That's good. What else? Authority given unto Christ, right? God has spoken to us in times past through prophets and the fathers. In mm-hmm. last days, he spoke to us through Jesus Christ. That's it. Last days, God spoke to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the Word incarnate. When we gather together, when we talk about ourselves, what do we call ourselves? Hmm? Christians, right? Christ-like. That's what we want to be. Why are we Christ-like? Well, because we do our best to follow the Word, right? Right? Okay. That word came from Christ. When we look at the sayings of Christ, when we look at the 
works of Christ, do we not see the New Testament? Is that not what the New Testament is? The teachings of Christ, the things that he said, the things that he did every day. When we talk about the word of Christ, we're talking about Christ himself, are we not? Unlike many people that we have in the world today, Christ did not say one thing and then do another. Right? His teachings, his workings are what salvation is based upon. He was the word and still is. Now, that word has been recorded for us in a version that we can read. But Christ is the word. His teachings are what make up what we call the New Testament, the Bible. So when we look at this, he talks about the fact that the authority was then extended through the preaching and writing of the apostles, and we'll look at that just a little bit here in a minute. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Okay? So what did Christ say about the Spirit? When the Spirit will come, he will bring unto remembrance what? All that I've said, right? What were the apostles or the writers supposed to do with that information? Well, they were supposed to record it for us, right? So we do that. So what we have is the Holy Spirit bringing unto remembrance to the apostles those things that Christ said. So we're back to where we started. Christ is the living word. Everything that he spoke, everything that he did, is the word. He says he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak. So the Holy Spirit is bringing unto remembrance to us those things that the Father wants us to know that Christ brought to us. So does, have, does Christ have the authority to tell us what is and is not required when it comes to salvation? Obviously he does. He was the one who came up with these works, right? So he does have the authority. He, in essence, when we talk about things today, when we write something today and we want to make sure that the things that we have, we've written or there, they're unchanged and stuff, then in the world today, in this country, you'll go get a copyright, right? That way the words that you've recorded cannot be changed. You are the owner of those words from that point on. No one can change those words but you. It's illegal for anybody else to do that. It's kind of an aspect here. Christ owns those words. Christ originated those words. No one else has authority to change those words except for Christ. So we're talking about the word. We're talking about the authority in the word. The authority that was in the Father was given to the Son, was given to the apostles and recorded for us. The same authority that the Father had, he gave to the Son. The Son gave authority to the apostles and to the words that they recorded. So when people talk about the Bible and they wonder about whether the Bible is something that we should follow and how close we should follow and can we vary from here and from there and what the Bible says, the answer is no. Right? The Bible, the Word, is the authority given by Christ through the Holy Spirit and recorded by the apostles. So yes, there is authority in the word and no, we cannot deviate from the word. 
These verses that show the words recorded by the writers of Scripture are binding on Christians and originate from the Father. Because the words of Jesus and his apostles are authoritative, authoritative, they must be obeyed. Whether spoken or written, these words serve to provide direction in our case, the opportunity to read the inspired words of Scripture. Our approach to the Scripture must be similar to that of Thessalonians. Oh, maybe it'll get better as we go on. Praising their attitude, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe it. So we go back and look at this verse. It says, you received the word of God. Okay? That's the first point. The Word of God does nothing for us until we receive it. We can see Bibles sitting on shelves in bookstores, and we can see them laying on tables in people's homes. We can even own one and have it in our house. We used to use it, had it on a coffee table years ago, right? But until you pick it up and read it and receive that Word, it's going to do nothing for you. And then you heard it from us and you welcomed it. So now not only have I read the word, not only have I understood the word and received it in my heart, I welcome that. I want the word. That's what he's saying here. I want it to be a part of my life. I want to pattern my life after this word. I welcome that into my life. And then talks about the fact as it is in truth the word of God. So we understand that this word that we're bringing into our lives, this word that we're looking to obey, is truly from the Father. The Bible is not the product of ingenious human design, but is God's message conveyed through human instruments. Man could not imagine God as many try to claim. You see that today when we talk to people who are atheists, who believe in evolution and other things, God is not real, according to them. It's something that mankind made up from the beginning. Man has always looked for a higher power, and therefore we created God. That's their opinion. But they say they base their stuff in science, right? Their beliefs are in science, not in religion. But when we look at science, we cannot create God in our minds. We cannot imagine God. There are only two ways to get information. One is for us to create it. That's what we call imagination. And two, revelation. That means it comes from an outside source. Okay? Imagination can never create anything new. Okay? Now, I see some confused looks. Imagination only takes information and knowledge that you already have and recombines it into another form. Okay? So I can tell you that when you go home tonight in the dark, you're going to run into a green monster who's 40 feet tall and has fiery red eyes and, okay? Of course, there's no monster like that, right? I haven't created anything new. In my imagination, I haven't created anything new. I know what 50 feet is, right? You can look at buildings and see what 50 feet is. 
or you can look at a ball field and see how long 50 feet is. You know what the color green is because you've had past experience to green. Now your version of green may differ from your version of green, but this is knowledge that you already have, right? We're recombining knowledge that we have into a different form. But there's nothing new in what we just described. Everything that we described comes from some other knowledge that we already have. That's imagination. You cannot imagine, you cannot come with, up with something that you do not already know about. You only recombine things that you already have. So back to knowledge. Knowledge comes either through imagination or through revelation. So if we cannot imagine God, if mankind had never known of God, and he could not imagine God, then the only other alternative is revelation, which means God revealed himself to us. That's how we know about God. All right, when we look at the authoritative nature of the word and we, we try to talk to some people, we'll get these types of things. But let's look back to some things about the word. Are you, I assume you're familiar with the term foreknowledge. We've discussed that, I think, probably many times. When we look at the Bible, we look at a few things of foreknowledge. Okay, let's think about the sun. The sun is moving through space in a huge orbit. Okay, we understand that. Just as the earth goes around the sun, the sun is also moving in an orbit. When we read in Psalms 19, 4 through 6, it says, Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And then he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices as a strong man to run a race. He's going forth for the end of the heaven and to his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Okay, so the sun is moving in a circuit, it says, in an orbit. Okay, that was written about a thousand years before the birth of Christ. Okay. It was only recently discovered that the sun is moving through space at about 600,000 miles per hour in an orbit that would take an estimated 230 million years to complete. We just discovered that in the last 50 years. But was recorded in the Word 1,000 years before Christ. So if we didn't know about it, and we can't imagine it, then somehow it had to be revealed to us, right? So this writer in the Psalms did not come up with this concept. This was revealed to him. Again, the universe is in an expanse. And Isaiah 51, 13 says, And forgettest the Lord thy maker, that thou stretch forth the heavens and laid down the foundations of the earth, and hast feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor, as if they were ready to destroy, and where is the fury of the oppressor? And Job 37, 18 says, Has thou with him spread out the sky, which is strong as molten looking as glass? First reference to this in the Bible comes about a thousand years before Christ and last about 518 years before Christ. But when did we figure it out? 1927. So the Bible knew about 3,000 years before we did. 
Alright, looking at uh, nature of the jet stream. In Ecclesiastes 1 verse 6 says, The wind goeth toward the south and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to its circuits. It was written about 935 years before Christ. Okay, the jet stream was first discovered by airmen during World War II. Mount Everest, the highest mountain in the world at its peak, 29,028 feet. Yet the jet stream exists from 32,164,100 feet since airplanes didn't exist in 935 years B.C. How was the author of Ecclesiastes able to give such accurate description of the jet stream? And one more we want to look at, the idea of entropy. Psalms 102, 25 and 26 is, of old hast thou laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yet all of them shall wax old like a garment, as a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall all be changed. Isaiah 51 and 6 says, Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look upon the earth. Beneath the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment, and they that dwell therein shall die in manner. But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. Again, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens have made the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall all wax old as doth a garment. First reference is about a thousand years before Christ. The second one is about 740 years before Christ. And the last one in Hebrews is about 60 years after Christ. Okay. We discovered... The idea of the second law of thermodynamics and the concept of entropy in 1850. But the Bible had it recorded a long time before that. So, when we look at the Bible, are we concerned about the origins of the Bible, where the scriptures came from, then this ought to put a mind at ease. The Bible is recording information that we did not have access to thousands of years before we figured it out. So it's not like mankind recorded this because we didn't even know about it. We did not realize what was going on and how these things worked, these cycles and circuits and things like that until thousands of years later, but yet the writers were able to record them. Then Paul emphasized the role played by the Holy Spirit when we look at 1 Corinthians 2 and 2 Peter 1. God has revealed unto us through his Spirit. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but in the Holy Spirit, but which the Holy Spirit teaches concerning spiritual things with spiritual. Scripture must be viewed with a reverence. Its message is essential. Okay? So if we've come to the conclusion that Scripture comes from God, from the Father, through the Son, through the Holy Spirit, recorded by the Apostles, we understand now that, as it says, it's reverent, right? We must show reverence for the Word of God, just as we would show reverence for God. It's essential, we know, for our salvation. The only way to get to heaven is through the Scripture. So the question is, how do we treat the Word today? Larry pointed out to me one time years ago that in the Old Testament times, the reader would sit and all others would stand during the reading of God's Word. 
to show reverence. The reading was lengthy. And the one doing the reading would be doing a lot of work. So that gentleman sat. Through that lengthy reading, everyone else stood to show respect. Not for the reader, but for what he was reading. Okay. Now, when I was younger, and the scriptures read in the service, everyone would stop. We would listen, right? Show respect. If people were coming into the foyer at the time that someone was reading the scripture at the beginning of the service, everyone would stop. Unfortunately, we don't see that today. I'm afraid we've lost a little bit of that respect that we had for the Word. We get busy in our day-to-day things, and this has to be done, and that has to be done, and I've got to get this ready before service, and I've got to do this. But in reality, no matter what we're doing to prepare for service, nothing is more important than what's being read. And then is the scripture truly as the psalmist proclaimed? In Psalms 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and light to my path. That's one thing we have to think about ourselves. Is that really true for us today? Do we consider this a light to our path? Is this what is guiding us? Okay, then going a little further, we talk about the mystery of Christ. Although we typically use the word mystery to refer to something that's lacking explanation, this is not what Paul meant when he used the term in Ephesians 3. Of all, the term mystery referred to what is formerly unknown. Ephesians 3, verses 3 and 4 says, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Paul was describing the message of God that had already been revealed, the wonderful plan worked out across the centuries had been purposefully revealed ever so gradually. Thus it was in those uh, preparatory ages a mystery. And we've talked about that before in the previous class. God had the plan of salvation before the beginning of time. He knew that when he created man, man was sin, and there would need to be a plan to bring man back, to reconcile man to God. So this plan has always been in God's mind. But after the sins of Adam and Eve, he didn't come out the next day and say, here's the plan. Right? The plan came through prophecies and miracles and things of that nature that brought it to us gradually, a little at a time, to prepare us for it. The true revelation of heaven's secret is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul's primary point was that God's message, which was formerly unavailable, was now available to all mankind. As a means through which the word of God was to flow, Paul took his task seriously. His task was to share the message of Jesus Christ with the Gentiles. He did not claim to do this of his own accord. When we look back in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Back again to the concept of revelation that we talked about earlier. Because the authoritative message of God has been revealed, individuals must respond to it in an appropriate manner. 
Encouraging this response, Paul also said in Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The difference between being wise or foolish is the difference between hearing and obeying God's word or ignoring and rejecting it. Rather than being inaccessible, God's word can be understood and obeyed. And then again, Ephesians 5, chapter, um, chapter 5, verse 17 this time. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Wisdom is understanding what God wants of us. And then doing that. We can gain all the knowledge of the world. It doesn't matter what field you're in. Even if you get to the point where you're at the top of that field and you know all the knowledge that you can about that one subject, it's still not going to help you in the day of judgment. So although it may be great for you during this life, ultimately it's foolishness because when you show up at the day of judgment, you're going to be lost. So we have to split our time, unfortunately, in this world because we do have to work. We do have to do those things to provide for ourselves, for our family. That's part of God's plan in this world is for us to work. But at the same time, we have to carve out time that we can study and we can understand the scriptures because working may get food on the table and working may get us those wants that we need. But that's not going to get us into heaven. Only the studying of the scriptures and understanding of God's word is going to do that. So knowledge in this world is going to be a short-term gain, I guess is the way to look at it. But knowledge of God's word is ultimately what's important and in the long term will be what we need. So if the Bible is the authoritative word of God, one would expect to find a claim for it within its pages. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, we see that in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The scripture Paul refers to in this passage is likely what we would refer to as the Old Testament. And Timothy, through the godly leadership of his mother and grandmother, had been taught from the Holy Scriptures from his youth. This is altogether fitting. Paul also noted that the scripture was able to make one wise for salvation unto faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Perhaps this knowledge would be gleaned from the numerous prophecies in the Old Testament that were eventually fulfilled in the life and death of the Messiah. Even so, the sacred writings designation was broader than the Old Testament scripture alone, for the Old Testament by itself cannot completely make one wise into salvation. There's a lot of valuable information in the Old Testament, and we're encouraged to read the Old Testament and learn from the Old Testament because it gives us insight into the mind of God and in what he had done and what he had planned for the future. A lot easier to understand the plan of salvation today when we understand the source and how we got that plan of salvation. But the Old Testament itself cannot save us. When we read the writings, it tells us that the Old Testament cannot save us. That was the reason for the coming of Christ in the New Testament. Paul's description indicates Scripture would not be viewed as a product of man. It says it should be regarded as God's inspired word. Although the individual authors of the Scripture were free to use their own vocabulary and style, the message they conveyed was entirely God's. In what is known as verbal inspiration, 
And additionally, we must not miss the practical applications of Scripture. Through the authoritative Word of God, we are taught, rebuked, corrected, and trained. We see that in 2 Timothy 3.16 we talked about. Those who submit themselves to the teachings of the Scripture are made complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I could ask for someone to raise their hand, or everybody to raise their hand, who's perfect. But it would be kind of a useless effort, wouldn't it? I'm not going to raise my hand, and I don't think anybody else is going to raise their hand. But if we're not perfect, that means there's room for improvement. Is that not right? When it comes to salvation, when it comes to being that Christian that we want to be, how do we get improvement? Well, we just read it, right? The scripture is taught, and we are rebuked, and we are corrected, and we are trained through our study of the scriptures. We may be doing something in our life that's not right, and we don't really know that. But when we study the scriptures, we begin to learn that that is not right. That needs to be changed. And so we adjust our life to follow what we've now learned. We put behind those things that we know that are wrong, and then we begin to pick up those things that we know are right. And a lot of times people have difficulty with this. Uh, things are done in families. Um, it could be of a religious aspect, obviously, but it's a family tradition because the family has always been a member of this religion. Or it may be a simple case where they may be Christians, but somewhere in the past someone misunderstood something and the family has always done this thing, but it's not correct. But when we study the scriptures for ourselves, we now begin to learn that these things in our past are wrong. And we have to remove those things from our life, and we have to do those things that we know are right. Now, as I said, people sometimes have difficulty with this, because they look back and, well, my parents did this, or my grandparents did this, or whatever. And if, if I say what I read in Scripture is right, that means that they were wrong. Well, I'm not sure about that. I don't know about that. I don't know their lives, and I don't know what went on. But I do realize that if you have a parent or a grandparent or some family member in your past that you were close to, and you've learned something different through what the Bible study tells you, that they would definitely want you to follow it, would they not? Whether they did or not. If that relative had lived in a time before us and had a disease that was incurable, but yet in your lifetime they found a cure for it, do you think they would not want you to take that cure? Okay, this is a physical aspect, but let's take this to the spiritual aspect. If there was something in their lives that was incorrect, wrong, but they were trying to do what was right, and you found out through your study of Scripture what that was, do you not think they would want you to make that change? So in the doctrine of Christ... Given the authoritative nature of Scripture, again, man has, a right, has no right to change or deviate from the message that's presented in the Scripture. We're not allowed to read Scripture and interpret it the way it applies to us, the way we want it to be. It's not the intent. Scripture is not open to private interpretation, tells us. Our intent is to find out what God wants of us, not what we want. 
The Apostle John addressed this problem in 2 John, having emphasized the necessity of obeying Jesus' commandments. John addressed how to deal with those who rejected Christ. Accordingly, those who failed to abide in the doctrine of Christ were needed to be received or greeted as an evangelist. If individuals denied either the personal coming or the teaching of Christ, they were not to be allowed to teach under your roof. To do so would be um, you resulting in complacency or in guilt in their sin. We cannot help spread false doctrine. When we help spread false doctrine, we become guilty of teaching that false doctrine. There's no difference. Closely associated with adhering to the teachings of Christ also is the idea of accepting all of God's word. One does not have the right to enter, either add or take away from it. John made this point clearly in Revelation 22. Although it's true John's warning was attached specifically to that particular book, the Bible elsewhere contains similar admonitions. Paul instructed the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6 that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Ties into what we discussed last week. We're not to go what's beyond not to go beyond what is written. So we cannot begin to add things to the word. We cannot begin to add things to worship. We cannot begin to add things to our daily lives beyond what the word tells us. When we do so, we sin. So how does this compare with those that we discussed that state some things aren't specifically condemned in Scripture? As we talked about last week, we've heard that. Well, the Bible doesn't tell me I can't do this. You know, but if the Bible's already told you what you can do, then everything else is excluded. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been recorded as what we can do. We are given freedoms in a lot of areas, but there are certain areas that we aren't. If Paul's message to the Ephesians teaches us anything, is that we are in possession of God's plan for humanity, whereas this plan has not always been available, the redemptive role of Jesus was now revealed. Additionally, Paul emphasized that man is capable of understanding God's revealed plan. How fortunate we are to know that God intends for us, what God intends for us to do. Ignorance is no excuse for us. The concept of verbal inspiration of the scripture is found as foundational to Christianity. Rather than containing the ideas of doctrines of man, the Bible is God's message. Consequently, we must regard scripture as being authoritative. It is, after all, through scripture that we receive direction for our beliefs and for our practices. If we read and study the scriptures, the purpose for that is to become Christian, to become Christ-like. But if we're going to vary from those scriptures, we're no longer Christ-like. To be Christ-like, we have to do what is in the scriptures, no more and no less. Once we get outside that box, we're no longer Christians. Thank you very much.